Nexus PMG welcomes you to the Bigger Than Us podcast, which we as energy geeks lovingly refer to as the BTU. Bigger Than Us is a podcast that focuses on ideas that will shape the future of our planet and ultimately our existence. We will occasionally lean into energy topics because after all, it's the key to our collective survival, but we'll also explore other ideas and topics that we believe will have an impact that is bigger than us. And now, on to today's show. Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Craig Kasberg to the show. Craig Kasberg began working on commercial fishing boats in Alaska at age 14, and by 19 was captaining his own fishing vessel in southeast Alaska. Craig then started a sustainable seafood marketing business where he began to envision the development of technology to upcycle seafood byproducts as the opportunity that could make the largest impact to the industry. Craig eventually began to focus full-time on seafood byproduct upcycling with the goal to reduce waste and encourage sustainably managed fisheries. This led to the development of the world's first green process of turning discarded fish skins into aquatic leathers. At the same time, Craig was working on developing extraction methods for producing chitosan from crustacean shells, which led to the co-founding of Tidal Vision in 2015 with his partner, Zach Wilkinson. Craig, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Raj. Thanks for having me. Craig, thank you for joining. Craig, before we dig into the story of Tidal Vision, can you please explain to me what's a salmon gillnetter? (laughs) That is a commercial fishing vessel that uh, uses about one quarter mile long nets to harvest salmon to feed the world in Alaska. And how do those nets work? Uh, They are hauled in with with big hydraulics and uh, um, managed, you know, by the state of Alaska through a limited entry fishery, meaning it's sustainably managed and um, it's a, it's a very interesting industry, uh, <laughs> very, very hard work, but also very rewarding. And the reason I asked that, and you mentioned history, can you share your history of how you got involved with salmon fishing? Yeah, that's what I grew up doing. I started working on commercial, you know, salmon gill netters and halibut and black cod longliners when I was 14, nearly 15 years old. And I, I did that, you know, through my early 20s. By the time I was 19, I was captaining my own commercial fishing vessel in Alaska. And that's where my love of the ocean and seafood and everything started from. What's the life like in the day of a fisherman? Very early mornings, very long days. You know, some of the lessons I learned in those years of my life, though, were Uh, Sometimes the biggest rewards come when you think outside the box, you try fishing, you know, a new area that maybe you're not familiar with. And uh, it's it's very rewarding work because you can look under the fish uh, hatches and see, you know, the thousands of pounds of fish that are harvested and, and think, oh my goodness, you know, I did enough work today to feed two or three or maybe even four or 5,000 people a meal. And, and there's something really tangible about that. When you say early mornings, ballpark, what does that look like? Oh, like, like 3 a.m. What time do you hit the water? 
Oh, I mean, uh, we would do trips for, for many days on end. The longest trip, commercial fishing trip I ever did was 28 days at sea. And you would unload your fish every 24 hours to what are called tender vessels. Um, uh, but usually, you know, more like three to four days, but, but sometimes 28 days straight. Can you walk us through that 28-day journey? What does it look like? What's a tender vessel? Yeah, so tender vessel is a, a boat contracted by the seafood processing industry to go out to all the fishermen on the fishing grounds and take their catch every day and bring it back to shore uh, for processing, whether that be filleting, freezing, you know, flash freezing, um, smoking, packaging, canning, whatever it may be. And uh, uh, yeah, doing that every, every 24 hours. And I'm sure there's some methodology. How does the tender vessel distinguish between the different catches from the different boats? Uh, yeah, they, they put the fish in ice holds with totes and uh, they're able to separate them where that uh, makes sense for their business. And, and they do separate them by species and, and sometimes down to the individual vessel. Uh, but the, uh, the transaction happens when you unload from the fishing vessel to the tender vessel because the hydraulic cranes they use pull up 1,000 pound bags at a time called brailer bags. And uh, they have a scale at the end of the hydraulic crane. So you know how many pounds uh, of fish you unloaded. That is really interesting. I appreciate you sharing that. The transaction happens at the point of which they collect the fish. Yep. So like I mentioned, Tidal Vision, can you give the audience an overview of Tidal Vision and your role at the organization? Yeah, absolutely. So Tidal Vision is a company that upcycles byproducts from sustainably managed wild fisheries that would otherwise be discarded. And, you know, my inspiration for starting it was seeing all the waste generated by this industry I grew up in and, and love. It, it's a huge part of the culture and uh, traditions in the area of Alaska I grew up in. And, and just seeing 30 to 40% of the biomass you know, ground up and discarded either back into the ocean or landfills. Uh, I just thought there had to be a better way. It seemed like the opportunity to make the biggest impact on that industry. And so Tidal Vision was started as a company to develop technologies for high value uses from these byproducts. And, uh, and that evolved over time. Uh, but we ended up discovering a unique way of extracting this really high performance biopolymer called kydosan. And, and that's what we make today is we extract kydosan and then we produce kydosan solutions for different industries that displace synthetic chemicals. So it's, it's very much a, uh, a green you know, business. We're taking a abundant problematic byproduct in crab shells, shrimp shells, any sort of crustacean shells, upcycling it, uh, our, the only byproduct from our process is a fertilizer nitrogen input and isolating this biopolymer that uh, our team can do amazing things with. Now, I enjoyed doing research on Tidal Vision and you. One of the products that intrigued me earlier in your journey were salmon skin wallets. Is that correct? That is correct. Yeah, the first... The first green process we developed was the first vegetable-based tanning process for making aquatic leathers. And exactly right, uh, those 
aquatic leathers were produced from fish skins that would otherwise be discarded from, uh, you know, salmon smoking lines where they would take the fillets and remove the skins before smoking. And, uh, and we were able to turn that into a really durable product that was turned into all sorts of goods from uh, handbags to belts to wallets, like you mentioned, all, all sorts of different products. Now, how do you eliminate, let's say it nicely, the scent of the salmon? <laughs> Fortunately, that's taken care of in the tanning process. You know, just like uh, cow leather doesn't smell like a, a real live cow, the, the tanning process included a, a degreasing or removal of the oils and, uh, and, and a preparing of the fibers for, you know, the tanning vegetable-based oils. And so at the end, it, it smelt more like the tanning inputs <laughs> than anything. And that was a common question, though. Are you still providing salmon wallets? We are not, no. We, uh, we handed that uh, business over to a, a different company in Alaska that still makes some salmon leather to this day. Now, earlier you mentioned the biomass. And can you give us some idea of just how much waste is available for production? Yeah, in Alaska alone, approximately 2 billion pounds of seafood byproducts are just discarded every year, annually. Um, nationwide, in, you know, we're, we're primarily focused on crustacean shells. There's about 800 million pounds of wild crustaceans landed annually in the U.S. every year, according to NOAA, uh, from all the fisheries, shrimp, crab, lobster, and about 35% of that is waste. And what currently happens to that waste? It's currently discarded and uh, typically uh, it's ground up and put in landfills. And crab shells, shrimp shells, lobster shells, they're, they're made up. They contain about 40% calcium carbonate, which is the same thing as in limestone. So it's very slow to naturally biodegrade. Uh, so the seafood processors are no longer allowed to dump them in the ocean in front of their plants uh, because they bioaccumulate there when they're concentrated. And so they either end up in landfills or incinerators. So as I said, I enjoyed researching you and your company. I know you started out in your teens as a fisherman. Nowhere in your bio does it say scientist. How do you go from being a fisherman to now creating these products from Kaidosan? That is a great question and uh, one I often struggle to answer, but I would, I would bring it back to my fishing roots and, and say one thing about being a commercial fisherman is you really learn to be self-reliant. You learn how to problem solve and uh, you have to because when you're out on the water for, you know, say up to 28 days straight, if anything breaks, if anything goes wrong, it doesn't matter if you're a mechanic or not, you need to figure out a solution. and. Uh, and, and if you don't have that knowledge, you need to know, you know, how to ask the right questions over the radio to get the information and, and be able to find a way home safely. And so I think growing up in that environment, um, those those sort of traits or skills, if you will, come second nature to me. Uh, I like to say I'm really good at connecting dots. So when we you know, started this, I met my business partner, the other co-founder, Zach. Uh, 
we were introduced by a mutual friend named Johnny Fishmonger, a character of the Alaska <laughs> seafood industry, who said, uh, yeah, Craig, you have to meet Zach because there's only one other person I've ever heard talk about Kaido-san and neither one of you will shut the F up about it. <laughs> I, said, uh, I said, okay. And, um, and, you know, Zach had a, had a network of researchers and scientists and um, he introduced me to one, a gentleman named Chris Griggs with a PhD in, in chemistry. And uh, I said, Chris, like I have this, this idea, I've been researching it a lot. What do you think? He said, I think it has merit. And uh, we put together a plan and approach. We have a certain process for R&D here that we still use to this day. And, and we developed this extraction process, the, the first green method without using, you know, strong acids and bases to extract kydosan from crustacean shells. And we've, we've just grown and continued to innovate since. But I want to double down this idea of problem solving. I understand problem solving when you're out at sea, you know, you said 28 days, your life is potentially dependent on it. Extracting kydosan from crustaceans, you know, your life didn't depend on that. And you mentioned researching a lot, which is, you know, showing some drive, but what moved you so much that you decided that, you know what, I'm going to go down this path? That's a good question. The potential impact of it is what, what did that for me, you know, both from the seafood industry. Hey, well, you know, it's, it's one thing to just force an industry to dispose of things in a, in a certain way. It's another thing to say, uh, you know, carrot versus stick. Here's a better way, you know, that we can turn that biomass into something useful for the world. And then, you know, what really got me excited was seeing the different potential applications for kydosan. So kydosan is a biopolymer and there are many biopolymers. What makes kydosan unique is it's the only one in the world with a positive or cationic charge. And, and that gives it all sorts of unique properties that, that I'm sure we'll talk about shortly. Uh, but it's also the second most abundant in, in nature, only behind cellulose, the building block of all plants. So I just saw an enormous opportunity where the, the scale of this biomass was available to, if we could figure out a green way of extracting it, um, we can do all this good and create all this, this value and uh, displace all these, you know, synthetic chemicals that have a positive or cationic charge because kydosan is the only natural material with that property. So um, although my life didn't depend on it, certainly, <laughs> uh, I would say I, I, I probably became what most would consider, consider obsessed with it and, uh, and just as determined. Well, you sound obsessed, which is a good thing. Can you... <laughs> Double click on the properties and then some of the current use cases of or for Kaidosan. Yeah. So Kaidosan is 100% biodegradable, biocompatible, completely non-toxic. It is, uh, it's even hypoallergenic, even for people with shellfish allergens. And, and our company is uh, saying some new QAQC procedures industry-wide for testing that down to 20 parts per billion on every single batch of kydosan we produce and all of our finished goods. Um, and, 
having a positive or cationic charge means it binds to anything that's non-ionic or anionic, meaning negative charge, really well. And so in commercial water treatment, for example, a lot of the pollutants that need to be removed from contaminated water, uh, such as a lot of different heavy metals and, and all sorts of different pollutants, have a negative charge. So kydosan can be used to bind to them so they can be removed. In uh, the textile industry, that positive charge and the durability of kydosan gives gives the material uh, really exciting fire retardant and antimicrobial properties. And most of our traction in the textile industry is on the industrial side. So fibers that end up in automobiles and mattresses and furniture and yarns for all sorts of things where we're displacing silver and copper, these non-biodegradable uh, heavy metal toxins that, that can bioaccumulate. It can, some of them can be absorbed through human skin, like silver nanoparticles. And uh, they end up, you know, as these products are disposed, uh, leaching into our groundwater and ending up in our waterways where they're persistent pollutants. Uh, in the agriculture industry, kydosan can be used as a biopesticide biofungicide and bioinsecticide and its its use there is is a little different it's not solely derived from having a positive charge um you know like it is in in textiles and the water treatment example i gave in agriculture kydosan's a plant elicitor because it doesn't just occur in the uh, shells of crustaceans it also is the building block of every insect exoskeleton and the outer cell wall of fungi. So plants have receptors for the presence of kydosan that elicits this natural immune response. And it basically makes the plant think I'm being infested by insects or a fungal infection. And in nature, these things happen, you know, slowly and go in cycles. Uh, but what happens in big agriculture is there's miles and miles of row crops perfectly spaced out, 18 inches, perfectly fertilized. And it's an unnatural environment where, you know, foreign insects, pests and disease can spread like wildfire. And then farmers have no choice because uh, they need to feed, you know, feed the world, uh, but to spray really toxic pesticides and insecticides. So in agriculture, you know, it's sort of a paradigm shift that what we're trying to do, which is get farmers to use kydosan before they have that insect outbreak, before that disease, plant disease or fungal infection spreads, because uh, kydosan can suppress that a lot of the time and, and prevent that. And, uh, you know, it just boils down to that classic saying to, to solve these big problems, we have to you know, use a different approach or, or think about it differently than how we got in that situation. And uh, that's why I'm so obsessed with Kaidosan, because it, it, it represents that. What was the first market you chose to tackle and why? Yeah, our first, you know, commercial market for Kaidosan was water treatment. And I would say the reason why, just to be completely honest, was it was opportunistic. The state of Washington doesn't allow stormwater treatment companies to treat stormwater and discharge into the environment if they're using synthetic polymers, you know, usually metal-based, aluminum-based, and, uh, and or petroleum-derived polymers. So 
there was a there was a really clear opportunity and right in our own backyard we're headquartered in in Bellingham Washington and now our stormwater treatment product line title clear is used to remove pollutants from stormwater everywhere from British Columbia down to Southern California and uh, to the tune of billions of gallons annually and uh, and so it was it was the first opportunity that we could address the quickest while we were growing. And not asking you to pick favorites, but which market are you most excited about? <laughs> that, that sounds like picking favorites. <laughs> <laughs> um, I am excited about all of them for different reasons. Uh, I do. I, I believe in 10 years, the biggest impact we can make is in the agriculture space um, by you know, transforming that industry's reliance on pesticides, insecticides, fungicides, that all these uh, uh, resistant issues are growing. All these fungicides, insecticides, pesticides cause an increase in resistance and therefore more and more have to be used over time. Um, you know, just like antibiotics at feedlots and, and kydosan, its mode of action is different. And it doesn't cause an increase in resistance. And there's a lot of science supporting that. So um, I think I think in 10 to 20 years, that's going to be some of the most important work. But I say that and, you know, clean water is a fundamental need <laughs> for, for the world. And uh, textiles affect all of our day-to-day -day lives from the clothes we wear to the carpet we walk on to the fibers in our automobiles. Um, to the furniture we sit on, and and the impact there is enormous as well. Now, you mentioned sourcing the crustaceans, your feedstock, essentially. Before you were, so I'm going to assume that you are paying for this feedstock. You're paying the fishermen for this feedstock. You mentioned that prior to that, they were putting them in landfills. Did you see a mind shift or a change in the fishermen that had the feedstock? Yeah, that, that whole industry, it's so interesting. They, uh, especially, you know, in, in Alaska and as well as our wild fisheries here, the fishermen take so much pride in using methods to harvest sustainably and, uh, and, and so much pride in using as much of the fish or crab as possible. It's, it's culturally and traditionally built in at many levels, you know, in, in the culture in these coastal communities that, you know, these, the seafood industry is a huge part of the economy. And, um, there's just a lot of pride in being able to say, okay, I fed people. And now instead of a third of the crab being put in landfills or incinerators, it's being turned into a biochemical solution that's displacing millions of pounds of you know toxic non-biodegradable metals and it you know it's a complicated story but those metals being displaced in these industries uh that prevents those metals from eventually leaching into our waterways and back into the ocean so it's a it's very much a full circle story and uh i'm i'm still very much connected to that industry that i grew up in and uh and there, there's a lot of passion and excitement there for for what we're doing. That's great to hear. Now, the crux of our conversation, and you mentioned, you know, your history in fishing and your, your love of the environment and seeing the waste happen, but, you know, what's your why? You know, the amount of challenges you must have gone through to launch this company, what continues to drive you and motivate you? 
the opportunity to make systemic impact. You know, our, our mission statement as a company is, uh, uh, you know, we want to create positive and systemic environmental impact. And we believe we have a opportunity to do that. And our strategy for doing that is by making our Kaido sand biopolymer solutions lower cost, more convenient, and as good or better performing than the synthetic chemicals we're displacing. I think a lot of companies, uh, a lot of, you know, green tech companies go into these markets pricing their solution at a higher price point. And we're in a really exciting position on a macro level to do the opposite. And, and that's how I think we can create systemic change. It's sort of the, the stick versus the carrot analogy again, right? The, these industries are ran by real people that really care about the environment, really care about doing the best they can in their business. And, you know, the, the industry, you know, is all these industries are fundamentally needed for humankind. And, uh, and so, you know, by just providing a just as good of a product at a lower cost point, there's, there's real excitement there. And, and on a macro level, you know, these chemicals we're displacing, they're derived from heavy metals that have to be mined. The cost of those aren't going down. Um, you know, your question about uh, paying the fishermen, these seafood processors have to pay the landfills. So we just take the shells for free. And so we're saving them costs, helping increase their margin. But we have a free feedstock and a zero waste extraction process that's very low cost. And we're competing with synthetic chemicals that, yeah, are more traditionally ingrained in these industries and more widely distributed today. But as every time we scale to the next level, our cost structure drops and these metals and petroleum products, their cost structures, if you look over time, are just creeping up. And we're already sort of at that inflection point. And uh, I think in another five years, our, our solutions are going to be mainstream in these industries. Craig, why is systemic impact important to you? Good question. Um, I believe if you see an opportunity like that, there's almost an obligation to try to see it through. And, and doing that, you know, requires collaboration with a lot of different types of people, different stakeholders. And that mission is universally motivating. And, you know, when I'm in my 80s and looking back on my life, I don't want to ask what if. Uh, I I see the writing on the wall on Kaido Sands potential, and you know we're I still consider us on the ground floor, even though we have you know facilities on both coasts now, and we're displacing thousands of metric tons of synthetic chemicals per month. Uh, I see millions in the future uh, per month, and uh, yeah, for me that that's that's really what it boils down to. I love the idea of being in your 80s and not asking what if. And staying on that vein, what's the most valuable lesson you've learned about yourself on your journey? Mm. <laughs> that is a good question. Lots, lots of lessons learned. Tons of lessons learned. Um, I would say the value in being fully transparent has opened a ton of doors for us. You know, in the beginning, uh, I was the typical and still am uh, very optimistic entrepreneur, uh, but how we've been able to have the successes that we've experienced 
uh, wasn't our own doing. It was by getting key insight and support from our customers. And so going to our customers and, and saying, look, here's where we're at today. Maybe we can only produce enough you know, of this you know, product today to displace 10% of your company's use of these other. But if you help work with us and help tell us what we can do to improve, um, you know, I, I mentioned problem solving, we'll figure out how to get there. <laughs> and, uh, and, but you can't do that in a black box, right? So you really have to be willing to show your cards. And what I've found is if you do that, you not only get the support and insight, you also get a, a big fan in the process, you know, a encouragement and, and maybe doors open that you weren't even expecting. So that's one lesson. Uh, I've, I've learned many lessons in my time here. <laughs> so you mentioned displacing millions. Let's fast forward into the future. It's 2030. If Forbes or Business Week were to write a headline about title vision, what would you like it to read? I would say Tidal Vision's vision came through. The multiple industries were transformed uh, with Kaidosan and the transformation of industries, key industries to being fully sustainable in their practices um, was achieved. I love that headline. Now you mentioned transparency and you mentioned the enrolling of fans or people to help you on your journey. But my last question is, and this could be professional or personal, is if you could share some advice or words of wisdom with the audience, what would it be? Mm. Um, lots of advice. I would say be willing for big problems to do the work of approaching things from a first principle standpoint. Uh, that's really served us well. All of our big breakthroughs have, have come when we've done that. It takes a lot of work, a lot of energy, can't be done in all situations. Um, but really, you know, question why things are done the way they are and try to really understand as much of that context as you can. And then I would say, you know, professionally, you know, in my position, you know, as a CEO of a quickly growing company right now, my most important job is to instill that big picture context into a team that is capable of executing in their uh, domain, you know, that they run, that they make decisions in, uh, in our business. And, you know, we're, we're trying to innovate quicker on the product development end, not slower as we grow, like you see in, in a lot of companies where things become highly decentralized and probably more predictable and, and uh, on the execution end, but innovation really slows. Uh, we're really focused on the opposite. So making sure that decision-making, we, we call them captains at our company, of course, we kept the nautical themes, but <laughs> having really well-informed captains and informed with the context of the big picture of where the company's going uh, so they can make decisions quickly and also are always actively seeking that context if, if this is someone leading our textile team on the trends in that industry same in agriculture, same in water, um, and, and all the way down to our production teams. You know, there's always room to improve. And uh, big, monumental, systemic changes like we're aiming for are done by the accumulation of many, many s seemingly small 
changes done many times over a long period of time. And so, yeah, hiring great people that you can trust and just focus on on context in the long term uh, would be my advice professionally. So I know I said last question, but you brought something up that I want to double click on for a moment. You brought up first principles for those that aren't familiar with thinking in first principles. Can you elaborate? Yeah, absolutely. First principles, there's, it's a terminology, it's a process. Uh, it's not, not one that we invented. Uh, it's one that a lot of famous, you know, entrepreneurs and investors use. Uh, you know, I know Elon Musk references it as some of uh, a principle that they have at Tesla and in their R&D and development teams. It basically means starting with just what you really know to be true. So oftentimes, the starting place on an idea or development is derived from experience, uh, which you know is often like analogous thinking. Like I've seen it done this way, therefore we should do that. And and ideas are limited at the start. And I think the most crucial part of R and D and innovation is where you start, the questions you ask at the start. And uh, and really, you know, asking, okay, it's good to know the industry does it that way currently, but why? And why? And why? And uh, until you really just know what are the hard truths, and, and from that, how can we build from where the hard truths exist today to, you know, the vision we have in the future? And it, it's a very long, challenging methodology for critical thinking. So it can't be done in every situation where maybe decisions need to be made, you know, quicker. Sometimes things like, you know, cer- certain frontline things. But I think on really big picture approaches and new product development, uh, I believe it's crucial. I'm going to keep going just because I'm a fan of this subject matter. You're a CEO. You're terribly busy. How do you carve out time for long, challenging critical thinking? That is a challenge. <laughs> yeah, the biggest success was hiring really smart people that I really trust to take off the day to day from me in the business. You know, the first couple of years, there were so few of us and we were all wearing so many hats. And uh, I still work 70 to 80 hours a week, just like I did back then. But uh, back then, so much of that 70 to 80 hours a week was putting out fires, just dealing with things that needed responding to. And it was really hard to be intentional, you know, in those first two years about carving out that time. Now I'm getting to a point where I would say nearly 70% of my time is spent on things that are multiple years in the future from their full purpose or execution coming to fruition. And, uh, and, and I, I continue to just prioritize that. And, and I love that. <laughs> I love working on things that are not tangible today and connecting whatever dot, dot, solving whatever problems, whether they're internal at our company or external that are you know gonna come to life in two, three, four, five years. Um, I get to live in the future every day and I love it. <laughs> I appreciate that and I admire that too. You know, you said something earlier regarding ideas are limited at the start. And I guess adjacent to your first principle comment, I learned about, you know, availability bias. 
Are you familiar with that? I'm not familiar with that term. So essentially availability bias is that the ideas that you've most recently been exposed to are the closest in your mind. And so when you think of a, perhaps a problem, the, the solution that you think of first is the first thing you've been exposed to recently. And if you don't go back to first principles and continue asking why, then you'll just you know stay with those first instinctive ideas, which aren't always helpful. So I, I really appreciate that because you know depending on what you've been reading or exposed to, perhaps through company, people you're around, you're, you're influenced by those initial ideas. And that's why it's called an availability bias. Mm, yeah, fascinating. That, that makes perfect sense to me. <laughs> well, Craig, I really enjoyed this conversation and I look forward to the future of Tidal Vision and catching up with you again soon. Awesome. Thank you, Raj. Appreciate you hosting me here. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please give us a rating and review on iTunes. And you can show your support by sharing our show with a friend or reach out to us on social media where you'll find us under our Nexus PMG handle. If there's a subject or topic you'd like to hear about, send me an email, btu at nexuspmg.com or contact me via our website, nexuspmg.com. And while you're there, you can sign up for our monthly newsletter where we share what we're reading and thinking about in the clean tech green tech sectors. Bigger Than Us is a Nexus PMG production.